Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. The U.S. Fed and jobs data is in focus this week, and we're joined today by Urian Timmer, Director of Global Macro, who reflects on this new data and biggest market movers he's seeing right now. With host Pamela Ritchie, Urian unpacks how good news is now bad news on the economy. Good news means the Fed must go further in raising rates, being more likely to over-tighten, and we will likely get a recession. Among other topics today, Urian also looks at market leadership shifting, U.S. mortgages, consumer debt levels, what's next for fixed income, and how the overall economy has proven very resilient lately. And per usual, Urian will be sharing charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. Today's podcast was recorded on March 6, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, Urian. Great to see you. I love the bikes. Good morning. Yeah, let's talk cycles. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Actually, that's brilliant. You're in a new place. Anyway, that looks looks great. how shall we begin with a slightly anxious, as your report today shows, a slightly anxious market, for sure? Yeah, uh, so let's start with where the market actually is right now. Um, and then we can talk about kind of, you know, Powell's testimony, what he's likely to say, um, etc. The first slide we'll look at today is technicals, tweeted by Urian on March 6th. You can see here the S&P 500 that last week it successfully tested four different intersections. Uh, the, the downsloping trend line from the highs last October, which were broken to the upside and then retested to the downside. The upward sloping trend line from the October low, the 50-day moving average and the 200-day moving average. So Amazing. they all came together last week and the market held and is now bouncing. And I think when we think about what's causing that, um, you know, there, as, as has been the case really for the last year plus, there are a lot of cross currents. Um, I call it, you know, kind of a, a liquidity limbo, if you will. Um, you know, earnings, of course, ha- has been that, that shoe that everyone has been expecting to drop, myself included. But the economy is proving to be fairly resilient. We saw that in the employment report for January. We're going to get February's report this coming Friday, which will be very important to watch. But maybe that that earnings Armageddon is kind of being pushed off. Like we saw, for instance, the fourth quarter earnings report, you know, was okay. It wasn't great, but it was okay. 68% beat their estimates, but only by not even 1%. Uh, and that's definitely below the norm. Um, but at the same time, you know, from my data, it looks like earnings might drop 10%. But the market can look through that as long as there is the promise of more a more an easier liquidity environment. And that's really what I think this is going to come down to. Uh, and I think Powell will will reiterate what he's been you know, getting blue in the face saying for the last 
three, four, five months saying, look, we're going to go as much, we're going to do as much as we need to get inflation not just down, but down to our target. And we're going to stay there as long as it's needed. And I think that's kind of the main change over the last few weeks is that those, the goalposts of where is the Fed going to end? Like at what is the terminal rate, right? Um, that goalpost keeps getting moved into, to a higher place, but it's being offset by the economy being strong enough to kind of take that earnings Armageddon scenario off the table. So there are these two opposing forces that have been driving the market really for the last, you know, 14 months, and they continue to be at odds with each other. Because if you think about, you know, uh, the, what drives the market, it's earnings. And it's liquidity, right? Interest rates, Fed policy, et cetera. And when, when earnings are doing well and liquidity is ample, that's when you get really big bull markets. That's when you get the plus 20 type uh, uh, gains. Um, but and, and when you get bad earnings and, and tight liquidity, you get really nasty bear markets. But most of the time, you're kind of in between those two. And that's exactly where we have been for the past year and where we continue to be and I think we'll continue to be there really uh, throughout m- most of 2023. So maybe this just adds on to that. But the, the idea that there's been so much volatility last year, obviously the rate story this year, kind of trying to figure out where earnings fit um, for January and February. Um, is there more stability now? It's been such high vol. Well, the, the volatility has really been on the bond side, uh, much more so than the equity side, right? So the VIX is like a 24, uh, but the move, which is the bond volatility index, that's where really where the action was. And, and it was unusual last year because normally the action is on the equity side, right? Like normally the, the bond side is, is like the, the calm and, and, you know, that's like the, the, the safe haven. But this storm last year was actually caused by the reset in the bond market, which was caused by uh, by the, the Fed obviously raising rates very aggressively, which it needed to do to, to kind of you know undo the, the overly easy stance it had before, and of course to rein in inflation. Uh, so you know I think that the question is where is this cycle going to end? Um, you know the, the question is starting to arise whether sticks will be the new five. You know I mean it seems. It hmm. seems kind of outrageous to even think that. Just, just I mean, on rates, like not including QT at the moment. Yes, yes, exactly. Next up is monetary policy, tweeted on March 8th. This will be followed by U.S. monetary policy, which was also the next tweet. If you look at the forward curve, which is the black line on the right-hand side of that chart, uh, current expectations are that the Fed will go to 5.4 or so percent. It's currently at four and five eighths. And until a month ago, until the unemployment report from January, um, the expectations were that the Fed would go to about four and seven eighths, right? So at four and five eighths, it would only be one quarter point rate hike away from concluding this whole cycle. Uh, Now that four and seven eighths has become 5.4 or so percent. And the question is, is that going to be enough? Also, the curve, like you see that kink in that forward curve. Uh, a month ago, the Fed was expected to pivot from four and seven eighths as the terminal point all the way back down below three, which is what the Fed considers neutral, uh, a neutral policy. Like if you look at the dot plot uh, and you look at the long-term median dot, it's about two and a half percent. So the market had been expecting the Fed 
to go to, you know, a reasonably restrictive stance and then pivot back to a neutral stance. And that whole thing is now being getting repriced. So now we're going to 5.4 and then we're going only to about 3.3. And of course, this is a, a snapshot in time. This can look different tomorrow than it does today, but it raises the question of, you know, what is even a neutral policy? Because the way we think about Fed policy, and maybe we can go to the next slide here, the way we think about Fed policy is as, is as a pendulum, right? You see here, you see R star, which is the equilibrium uh, rate of interest or the natural rate of interest. It's, it's not a market rate, it's a theoretical rate um, that, that is deemed, that, that measures, is supposed to measure at what percentage rate of interest the economy is in balance, basically. Uh, <clears throat> and we see historically that the Fed uh, swings through that line as, like a pendulum, uh, for a total of about five, six hundred basis points in either, uh, you know, in either direction. So when the Fed gets properly restrictive, when the economy is overheating and inflation is a problem, it's about two to three percentage points above our star. And when the Fed is easing, it's about two to three percentage points below. And so right now, our star, my estimate is that it's around one percent. That's a real rate and that it's rising, uh, which I think makes sense given what we're seeing in the economy. Um, and the Fed, of course, was an extremely accommodative uh, place, uh, play, you know, uh, stance during COVID. Is now trying to get to a restrictive stance. So, uh, so the question is, what is neutral? You know, what is it? Like, is it two and a half? Is it four? And if and the problem is, we can't really observe this in real time because it's not a market rate. We can just kind of guess based on economic models. Um, and this is why the Fed in the past has often committed policy errors because nobody really knows what is restrictive until it's too late. And we probably won't know this time until it's too late, meaning until we have a recession at some point, whether it's the second half of this year or next year. Um, so all we can do is look at what does the forward curve say? And the forward curve says we're going to 5.4 and then we strip out inflation expectations, you know, the tips break evens. And what we get is about 1.92%, which you see on this chart. And that is only about a percentage point above my estimate of our star, which may not be enough. It, like with inflation running at five, six plus percent and starting to become a little bit more sticky, uh, the question is whether a 100 basis point restrictive policy is going to do it, and right. and I think the answer may be no, which suggests that maybe the Fed has to go to six percent. Which again, six months ago, a year ago, if we had talked about this, it, we, you know, it was unthinkable. Six percent. I mean, the Fed would never have to go to six percent. But I, here we are. Can I just ask? So, so if you're a fixed income investor, uh, some of which may be joining us on on this uh, conversation, I mean, is it possible there's from the income side of things, there's a better place to enter? Uh, yeah, I mean, last on Friday, the 10 year went to 4%, uh, back to 4%. That's certainly not something I had expected. Um, we're back down below it. We're about 392 or so. But the entire yield curve has shifted upward um, uh, to reflect this new reality that the Fed is going to stay tighter for longer in all likelihood. And my guess is that Jay Powell will, will sort of hint at that. And so it, it you know, it makes bonds a, a less compelling place to be over the short term. But of course, we're not short term investors. We're we're long term investors. And eventually, as the Fed does presumably overshoot, 
um, to the upside of, on rates, uh, the curve will get even more inverted and then the long end you know, will, will get presumably rewarded. But there are different places to put your money on the 40 side, of course. It's not just in coupon nominal bonds. There are tips. You, you can buy, you know, uh, floating rate debt. You can buy high yield corporate bonds, which you know defaults are at an all time, all time low. You're getting about 400 basis points over, uh, over Treasuries, which are already at four. So you're getting eight percent. So there are places to put your money other than taking that that duration risk. But I, I wanted to bring up slide five, which I think is really interesting. For us, that slide is monetary policy and inflation, tweeted on March 9th. I had a conversation with a, a colleague last week uh, who mentioned, and, and people have mentioned this also um, in, in social media and other places, that you know the Fed has never um, stopped a tightening cycle until the Fed funds rate was actually at or above the actual trailing headline inflation rate, right? So we tend to look at the tips market as, okay, this is the collective wisdom of the markets and the tips market suggests we're going to go to two and a half percent over the next five years or so. Um, and then we use that to price, you know, that previous chart where, where I showed the real forward curve. But, but this is a very interesting, um, you know, uh, sort of idea that the Fed historically has brought in, uh, the policy rates above or at or above the actual trailing headline number. So in this case, I show the the core the the, the PCE, the, which is the Fed's favorite inflation target, and and you can see that we're still below it at 5.4 percent. And that would argue that maybe we do have to go to six percent or so. And it's interesting in this chart. So the the orange line is the Fed funds rate. The sorry, the yellow line is the Fed funds rate. The orange line is the inflation rate. And you can see that the only time that the Fed did not go above the inflation rate was during the early 1970s, which, of course, were a very famous policy error by the Fed because they did not act fast enough. That, those were the Arthur Byrne days of Fed policy. And it took Paul Volcker to finally kill the whole thing by, you know, by bringing rates up to double digits. So it's interesting that the, the one other time where we had a serious structural inflation problem uh, the Fed did not do enough, and it ended up becoming a much more entrenched problem. And maybe Jay Powell is looking at that, saying we cannot let that happen again. So it's another reason to maybe expect that the Fed will will just keep going until it actually sees the whites in the eyes of inflation. And what we saw with the CPI report, the PPI report, the PCE report in the last two weeks or so, was that all of them stalled out, right? They were making big progress from 9% on down, and then last month they stalled. And maybe that's just a one-off. We'll have the CPI next week. Um, but, you know, again, those are very important data points to look at because um, because they, they need to keep making progress for there to be uh, a light at the end of the tunnel that the Fed is going to be done with this cycle. Notice that the, um, the speaking, so, so what... Jerome Powell is going to say in testimony over the next couple. It's kind of before most of these big data points in the next sort of week, week and a half come out. Is there, I mean, what would happen, for instance, if it, if it was super, super hawkish, which, you know, makes sense on some level, and then the data points actually come in showing that things are not quite as robust as. Yeah, I, I think, I think he will, um, he will strike a more balanced tone than just, you know, like six months ago, they were, not data dependent. They were playing catch up. 
and they were going to go to at least X percent, no matter what the data was, because they were too loose for too long and had to catch up. So at that point, you know, that was a very consistent, very hawkish story. Um, I think since the December FOMC, and we'll get the March FOMC, <clears throat> of course, coming up uh, soon as well, uh, the Fed will be more data dependent and they, it will be more nuanced. They, it will say, I think he will say that inflation is coming down, but it's not coming down fast enough, or the Fed is not going to be satisfied until it comes down all the way to the Fed's target of 2%. So he will say things like that, um, and uh, he will acknowledge that you know the, the labor markets remains resilient, uh, but he's not going to paint himself in a box because at this point, it really comes down to, to the data, uh, which which kind of keeps this thing as as a moving target. And you know we're going to get the <clears throat> the unemployment report on Friday, and of course that will come after Jay Powell's testimony. Uh, although you know the conspiracy theorists will say that he will already have seen the data, but I, I don't know how if that actually is true. But um, but I think. Um, the, the payroll report will actually be more important than Powell's testimony. We kind of know what Powell's going to say uh, because he was saying that in December because the markets were not listening to the Fed, right? The Fed was saying, we're going to go up here and we're going to stay there until inflation is at our target. And the markets via the forward curve and via financial conditions, which were loosening, was saying, oh, no, 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 you're going to go right back to 3%. And so the Fed is winning that battle a little bit, right? We saw in the previous chart that the terminal rate is now higher and that it's going to stay up for longer. So the Fed is winning that battle. So he doesn't really have to hammer that in again um, this week. And of course, he's in front of a, a political audience, of course. Uh, and, and the debt ceiling, of course, is, is very much a, a part of that. But coming back to the uh, payroll report, which will be on Friday, that will be, I think, more important because the January report was very strong. And we're in that phase where good news is bad news on the economy, right? Because good news means the Fed has to go that much further and stay there that much longer. And the further the Fed goes, as that pendulum chart showed before, the more likely it is that eventually there's an error and that the Fed over tightens and we get a recession. And so good news is now bad news. So if the employment report uh, has a revision to the January data that maybe take some of the heat off the data, then that will be uh, very much welcomed by the market. But if if the February report is very strong and the January report does not get revised down, then that's more, you know, that's kind of another nail in the coffin of, okay, the Fed's going to keep going. When we look further afield around the world, um, with China, there, there's been some more discussions. We've got more sort of on the growth front for China, um, what sort of insatiable, commodities demand there might be from China or not. Um, when you're looking at that narrative, coupled with the geopolitical narrative um, between the US and China, what, what do you see there? Next, we'll look at the global earnings cycle, tweeted on March 8th. The geopolitical tensions, you know, will China now join the proxy war in Russia? Like those, those are obviously very important questions. Um, although they're not necessarily new, you know, trade tensions as well. Um, and, and all of that is somewhat inflationary, right? So the, the, it's, it's not going to drive the inflation narrative on its own, but it's one other component of <clears throat> keeping inflation stickier because you have deglobalization, reshoring of supply chains, uh, you know, possibly more geopolitical tensions with Russia and Ukraine, which might, you know, continue to, to move commodity prices higher. 
But when you look at this chart, and there's a lot of squiggles on this chart, but these are the this, this is a a uh, this is the earnings cycle globally. Uh, so it shows most major countries and regions. And what I think is interesting is that, of course, China has now reopened. You know, two years after the rest of the world reopened, and that's a major a major factor, I think. And you can see that that red line, which is China, as well as emerging markets in general. They're starting to um, become more stable. They're starting to rebound a little bit, even though the U.S. and other parts of the world are are continuing to uh, to decelerate. So there's a little bit of a of a desynchronicity in this data set, and as there is in the global economy, right? So uh, during COVID, everything locked down, um, and then the U.S. and the rest of the world behind it started to reopen. But only now China is reopening, and you see it in the data. The PMI data are strong in China. You look at some travel surveys and travel data, they're very strong. You have basically three years of pent-up demand in China being unleashed. And so this is the whole global reallocation trade. I mean, certainly uh, it, it's been going on for a number of months, but you know, US or North America versus EM or DM versus EM, so that remains a very relevant play right now. That's fascinating. And in terms of an actual secular shift, I mean, the, the discussion of we watched the drop in some growth stocks, particularly um, last year and into the value side of things. I mean, that seems to be continuing. Is that is that is that a yeah, longer term? So, so it, it's certainly been a cyclical rotation and, and it makes sense, right, because these long um, these mega cap growth stocks, the FANG stocks, the Nifty 50, which have driven the the S&P for the past 10 years or so, and therefore have driven the rest of the world because the U.S., the S&P is, is a growthy index more so than, for instance, Europe or Japan. So the reason the U.S. has had this hegemony of, of global portfolio dominance is because of these nifty 50 stocks. Um, but these are what we call long duration stock, right? A company like Apple's has a very, Apple or, or what have you, has, has a very long runway of, of earnings visibility because they're such a big, powerful network player uh, that it commands a high PE. Um, but it's also sensitive to changes in interest rates because per the DCF or the discounted cash flow model, you're discounting future cash flows by an interest rate and the valuation is the present value of those future cash flows. So if the cash flows get discounted by a higher rate, which of course everything has been during this big Fed reset, uh, they get disproportionately affected. So last year we saw uh, the leadership rotate from those nifty 50 growth stocks to basically value small caps, international commodities, et cetera. But my sense is that that is not just a cyclical story, but a secular story. And so we pull up slide 25. And that would be Secular Rotation, which at the time of recording isn't available on Twitter. But please keep an eye on Urian's Twitter, where it may be posted soon. Um, this is one of my favorite charts because it goes back 150 years. Um, I, I was on with Tom Keen on Bloomberg Radio this morning, and he loved it. I couldn't show the chart because I was on radio, but he's such a data nerd that he was like, oh, yes, I bet you have a 150-year chart. Uh, but it shows um, inflation and valuation at the top. And it shows the 10-year rate of change, the CAGR, between small and large value and growth, the commodities, and uh, international versus U.S. 
And you can see that there is kind of a three decades long cadence there with how that cycle operates. And so, um, you know, it's hard to pinpoint the timing because it is a very long term super cycle. But what we see is that periods of above average inflation and falling valuations, which is what we've seen over the past year plus, tend to produce periods of outperformance by value, international, small caps, commodity sensitive. Um, and so it all kind of makes sense that this rotation that we've been in is not just a cyclical one, but also a structural one. And that for the next five plus years, we could be looking at, you know, these other parts of the market outperforming the kind of this this mega cap growth uh, side, which of course is great for active management, just just mathematically speaking, right? If you if only 50 stocks are performing or outperforming, you have to get that small number of stocks right, and you have to own a ton of them because they're so big. So in order to make a difference, you have to own even more of them than their market weight. But if that rotation shifts to everything else, then you know, all of a sudden there's a lot more fish in the pond, and that's great for active management. There's loads of questions that have come in, and actually you've answered so many of them uh, as you've been speaking. So a couple of thoughts here from you, Yorian, on here's a question on the health of the U.S. consumer and also you know, debt levels for a consumer side of things. Yeah, so so I mean the the whole debt story is is very very important, uh, and we were talking beforehand, and I'm going to do some work on this. But so the consumer seems to be fine still, right? Unemployment is low, people have jobs, they are getting uh, wage gains, right? There's pricing power on the wage side for the first time in decades, basically. It's that battle between labor and capital. Um, and uh, there's a shortage in the labor market, right? These baby boomers who left the labor force during COVID. Um, and so uh, so I think overall, it's still a good story. Most of the COVID stimulus money has been spent, and part of the disposable income has been eroded by inflation, of course, which is very bad. Um, but But overall, people have jobs, they have income, and they're spending it. A lot of people in the U.S., maybe not elsewhere in the world, you know, have have very low uh, interest rate mortgages, so they're somewhat immune from the Fed's rate cycle as long as they're not selling their house and buying another one. Um, so this is another reason why the economy maybe is proving to be resilient in the face of rising rates because corporates and and homeowners have termed out their debt and therefore they're less sensitive because they don't have to refinance. But it raises the point of of the debt, and I saw a very provocative. Um, uh, analysis by someone out in the market saying that, you know, in the past when you had a financial crisis, and I don't, I don't think we're in a financial crisis, but in the past when you had one, it was always the same story. People had too much leverage. Uh, they had a, a mismatch between their assets and their liabilities. In other words, they would borrow short and and lend long, or or vice versa. No, I, yeah, borrow short, lend long, and then the Fed would raise rates, and that and that would trigger a liquidity crisis as you had all this leverage. And that's basically the ingredient for every financial crisis, long-term capital, the housing crisis in, in 08. Um, and this, the, the theory is that this time around, it's the central banks that are caught in those crosshairs because the central banks have gorged on debt. Uh, they bought $30 trillion worth of debt around the world, not just the Fed. Um, now rates are rising. So the Fed is now paying you know, four and a half percent on reserves to the banks, 
even though the bond portfolio that the Fed has bought is losing money now because rates are rising. And so I don't know if that goes anywhere because these are central banks. They're somewhat immune from the laws of, 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 of interest rate uh, physics. But it's a very provocative idea that the asset liability mismatch and the leverage this time around is actually at the center of where it all started, which is the central banks lowering rates too much, buying all this debt, uh, buying growth through debt, basically. So more to come. I'm going to think about this. It's kind of an existential question, not for not nothing we have to solve today, but it's a very provocative idea about maybe what's ahead, you know, for interest rates, debt levels, etc. Um, so this isn't a quick, quick question, but maybe you can make it a quick answer. Um, could the yield curve stay inverted until inflation comes down or there is a recession, whichever comes first? Uh, yes, I think that's that's very likely. So the Fed will, if history is any guide, the Fed will keep raising rates until something breaks, uh, which would be the economy. And if the economy breaks, then inflation breaks, right? That's what breaks the inflation fever, generally speaking. Um, and at that point, the yield curve would be at its most inverted because the long end of the bond market would be sensing this, right? We would see um, layoff announcements, unemployment claims would be rising. We would see all of this stuff happening, and the bond market would be very quick to figure that out. And then uh, the curve would be very inverted, and then the Fed would pivot because at that point, the economy is entering recession. The Fed starts to cut rates because then inflation presumably would, would disappear relatively quickly, and then the curve starts to steepen again. So that's typically how it plays out. So just looking ahead to this week, what would you like to leave investors with? Just got about 30 seconds here. Yeah. Uh, I think Jay Powell, you know, obviously we're all going to be watching him, but I don't think he's going to say much different from what he said in December, which was we're going to do what it takes. I mean, the, those are going to those are going are going to be the words, um, and uh, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of threatening language he has for Congress about the debt ceiling because uh, the Fed is kind of and in the crosshairs of that a little bit. But then really it's the unemployment report on Friday, I think will be the big one, and then the inflation data next week. But it looks like we're getting an, a reprieve from the earnings decline. I think earnings are declining, they'll continue to decline, but maybe 10%. And then it's, so it's really back to how far does the Fed go and how long is it going to stay there? And the unemployment report, given that it was such a big catalyst last month will be one that will be very closely watched. That's the one that we drink lots of coffee and get ready for. It's a pleasure to see you and your cycles. Yes, I'll be I'll be on the bottom bike in about 10 minutes. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> see you soon. See you next week. All the best. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. Until the next time.